Hello and welcome to the Indie Alternative Podcast. It's me, Chris. A very happy new year to you all. I hope you all had some great celebrations last night. I'm recording this on New Year's Day uh, without a hangover. Uh, it was very un-rock and roll in the olden household last night. Um, but anyway, today um, I'm very pleased to bring you another top five episode or bonus episode for the podcast. I had the pleasure of speaking to James McMahon about three weeks ago now. James was very generous with his time considering he was suffering from COVID um, and he gives me his top five indie tunes from the 90s. It was a really fun episode to do. Before we get to that though, just a quick reminder of the ways you can support the podcast. Um, so just make sure you follow on social media, search for Indie Alternative Podcast on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. You can also um, support the podcast financially, just hit the coffee donation page in the show notes there is a link to that and you can support me with a one-off payment or you can subscribe monthly it's up to you and lastly if you've not rated the podcast or left a review it would be great if you could do that as it really helps anyway that's it for the waffle and here's james welcome to the podcast james mcmahon how are you I, I I'm awful actually. Yeah, no, I'm all <laughs> all over the place. I've just uh, I'm like two weeks. I, I'm a couple of days after two weeks of COVID. Um, I, I I don't know how long they say COVID hangs around, but I I feel like uh, I feel like one of those. You know those fish, those blobfish. <laughs> See those blobfish? <laughs> like it's got no. It's just got no. No bones holding myself together, and I, I feel I feel feel wretched. But I I feel very privileged to be here talking to music with you. Oh, thank you, mate. And uh, it's been it's great to have you on. You're a sort of a podcast journalist extraordinaire. Um, when did it all nice. start? <laughs> when did it all start with music for you? Because you've been a journalist and a music journalist. But where where would the sort of that love for music start? I've just always like you know I really do remember being little I, music's not like a, a big thing in my family or anything i mean you know my mum can talk about seeing the small faces or whatever in the 60s but and she loves music but it's, she's not you know it's not like the thing that you know it's not the thing that soundtracks her life or anything and, and my dad is you know my dad my dad doesn't write anything let alone music so uh, it, it wasn't really i don't really know it didn't come from that way which i I know it does for a lot of people, but I do distinctly remember being a kid in the eighties, listening to Stock Aitken and Waterman hits on the radio and being like, this is amazing. Like just having melodies buzzing around my head. And that was really, really, really young. I was kind of like, I I think it's a a story that a lot of people my age might relate to, like pre-internet living, you know, in places a, a bit off the grid. I'm from, like a little pit village in South Yorkshire, like before the internet, the local library was this treasure trove of treasure trove of sounds and a proper mm. gateway into another world. And and I just loved books and stuff, but uh, loved books and stuff. He says like a like a proper <laughs> heathen. But uh, when I realised I could start renting records as well, like I was just away, and then Nirvana happened. Nirvana absolutely blew my head off, just changed yeah. everything for me. And then I guess that there was always, I always wanted to contribute as well as like consume. That's a, a bit of a defining feature of my life, really. Whereas 
I think some people, you know, they listen to music, they're like, this is brilliant, you know, they, they can't get enough of it. But I was always like, I want to play music and I want to write about music and I want to promote music. And just, you know, that's that was the start of it all, really, the sort of the touch paper being lit. In terms of writing then and reviewing and, and, and you know, just interviewing artists and stuff as well then, was there some sort of, do you remember some sort of or your first time of sort of dabbling in that in that world and 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 kickstarting you to sort of pursue that as a career so there's this band called bis uh from scotland and they uh you know when people talk about a band that sort of changed their life you know i always say nirvana but then it happened again and i was i think i was 16 and i was watching top of the pops and this band bounced on stage unlike anything I've ever heard before and I just got obsessed with them uh, like you know it's such a cliche really that thing about you know a band on top of the pops changing your life when people talk about you know Bowie or um, I don't know T-Rex or something you know like mm. from from the 70s and it really was like that for me like you know I went to school and my mates at school would be like oh did you watch that band last night they were, they were awful but I you know that made me like them even more because they were just so different. And the thing with that band was, you know, they really were like an underground indie pop band. Mm. Like uh, the the single that came out after Candy Pop, which is what they played on top of the pops, they had like one of their home addresses printed on the seven inch because they thought the reach would be so small. And getting into that band, it was like... It's almost like sort of joining a cult or something. And then, like two of them did fanzines. Mm. And then so I discovered what fanzines were. And again, you know, pre-internet or at the very dawn of the internet, that was hugely appealing because uh sort of just showed me that there was a, a life beyond, you know, the grey, dreary boundaries of, you know, where I grew up in and... And then, you know, like once I started writing about music uh, for my fanzine, I it probably intersected with a total obsession with the enemy around that time. Um, Stephen Wells, Johnny Cigarettes, uh, th- th- those writers were just, you know, were everything to me almost, like mm-hmm. teaching me, almost teaching me a new vocabulary, really. And then, yeah, no, you know, kind of, I would be lying if I said that at that point I was like, I want to be a music journalist because I didn't know that was possible. I didn't know that was possible for someone like me, but that was definitely the point where writing about music just became something I did. And then that obviously led me to, you know, where I ended up. James, we're here to talk about indie bangers uh, as well. Um, and I gave you the the task of picking your top five, which is, is quite a difficult thing for anyone to do if you've uh, grown up in the nineties or, or the early two thousands, but well, we stuck to the decade of the 90s. How did you find picking your top five? Yeah, really easy, actually. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I said, actually, on the message to you, I like, kind of ended with, that's my childhood. And and with the exception of maybe one song on there, that really is, like, the narrative of how I got into music. Mm. Um, but I've always been quite... You know, if someone said... I mean, even all five of those songs would make, you know... A, now that's what I call James McMahon's taste in music, and they'd certainly be in like a top hundred, you know. But I, I, you know, if someone said to me, "What's your favourite song ever?" I think I could probably get there, you know. I think I could probably 
or they said, what's your, you know, 10 favourite songs ever? I think I could, you know, it'd be, it'd be tricky, like it would be for anyone that loves music, because you'd be like, oh, I should have this in there or this in there. But there are just songs that I just think are my favourite songs. So it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't that hard. Good. Let's start from the top. I don't know whether what order you want to go down, but we'll start from the list that you gave me. We'll start with Biss then, considering we've we've already mentioned Biss today. Um, Starbright Boy, nineteen ninety six. Yeah, that that one. That, that I guess that one was a bit tricky because I could have picked a lot of Biss songs, um, but uh, and you know, like with that band, I have been such a devotee of them that I suppose a favourite Biss song changes quite a lot but I, I that is that's just a a definitive uh for me really it just sort of articulates a lot of what i like about them they you know it's quite it's not an early single but it was quite early after they signed to ouija which yeah. i thought was an amazing label from my formulative years kind of getting into music you know i love loads of records that came out on that label whether it was brassy or corner shop and starbright boys like it's still very them you know it's still very indie pop you know mandarin's got a rap in the middle you know it's all about 80s movies and yeah and uh and i love all that stuff but it's also sort of them like trying to be blur and uh, you know as i'll come to like blur were Blue were like maybe sort of my first sort of teen crush as bands go, you know. I, I, I had posters on the wall. I spent hours and hours and hours pretending to be Graham Coxon. So, yeah, no, just a bit of a marriage of all that stuff, really. And it's got a great video. I mean, one of the, I don't think I've ever sat and watched the video from start to finish before because I was obviously listening to this in, in prep for the, for the podcast. But, um, probably one of the best videos from that era, I reckon, just in terms of just the way they've committed to that setup. You know what? They're like one of the things that's quite cool about kind of doing what I do is that, like, in a few cases, I've ended up becoming quite friendly with people who whose music I loved when I was younger. And one being Biss, you know, like they're friends now, which blows my mind. Really, I went to see them. They they did like, you know, they're, they're sort of they generally just exist now. You know, they they do a couple of gigs every year and you know, make a new record now and again and stuff. But there was a, a period where they were kind of off and on again. And during one of the periods when they came back, I went to see them and play at Primavera in Barcelona. And I was like, hanging out. I didn't know them that well at that point, but I was hanging out with John Disco, the, one of the guitarists, after the gig. And, I mean, it was just... I wasn't interviewing him or anything, but I was just asking him everything that I had ever wanted to ask a member of BIS. And there must have been part of him going, how come I'm standing in, I mean, Primavera basically sort of takes place in like a car park. Mm. How am I standing in a car park in 2010 talking about things that happened 15 years ago before with this really intense, over-enthusiastic young man? Like, it, I mean, he was great, but I was asking him things like that about like the Star Wars Boy video and who was in it and you know where the where the set was built and and if you're into indie pop like there's loads of really quite famous faces in that video there's amelia fletcher's in there and sean that uh used to work at rough trade and he you know he plays the 
the dastardly boss and stuff. So it's a bit of a sort of who's who of uh-huh. underground music of that time, you know. But that's no, cool, man. Second, we'll move on to the second choice then, James, um, which is, I've got to say, I've never heard this song, or I don't think I've even heard anything from the artist, Elliot Green, Red Rum. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I think if I was going to... Um, I think if I was going to say what my favourite song was ever, you know, like, I, as much as I'm a complete, you know, indie nerd, I think my favourite song would end up being, like, you know, it would end up being, like, a soul song or something. You know, it would end up being, you know, like a, like one of those... I don't know, like a This Old Heart of Mine or Stand By Me or something like that. But mm. if within, like, you know, the realm of noisy guitars and, you know, what I suppose we call indie music, like, I genuinely believe this song might be the most perfect song I've ever heard. Um, and it's such a weird story for them, actually. They... Um, I, I was a kid, I was listening to the evening session, I heard this song, it's called Red Rum, band Elliot Green, and I remember just about catching Lamac saying the name of, um, saying the, the record that it came from, uh, which is called United States. It was just, I mean, it just blew my head off. I, I just thought it was the most amazing song, and... I went out and bought the record, and the weird thing is, is when I bought the record, I don't think I listened to any other song on the record other than that song for maybe 10 years. Like, it it was almost like this song is so perfect that I can't, I can't dilute it by listening to any other songs by them, because what if they're terrible? Uh, and they're not, it's a good record, although I don't think any of the songs on the record are as good as that song. And then I guess when I was older... I mean, they didn't really do anything. Um, they're from Yeovil, and every so often I... <laughs> I'm sort of embarrassed to admit this, really. You know, some people, I guess, look up what their first loves are doing on Facebook, but <laughs> every so often I just scoot around the internet and see if I can find any, any information on on, um, on Elliot Green. And there are a few like sort of uh, webzine articles on them that are really old, you know, like when the internet was really shonky and, you know, a lot of kind of broken links and stuff. But there, are, there is a, a bit that's been written about them and I think they're one of those bands that anyone who saw them at the time um, lo- loved them and thought they were really, you know, they were really quite special. But, um, yeah, no, if, if, you know, if in the... In the strange event that anyone from Elliot Green is listening to this, like get in touch because I'd absolutely love to. I'd absolutely love to know more. I would love to ask them questions ad infinitum about that song. I just think it's genius. There isn't a great deal of um, information on the online about them, is there? Either like us try to sort of hunt down a Wikipedia page or anything, but it's scarce, which is rare. Y- yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think that's the. I don't think that's totally the appeal. You know, for me, I was just about to say, I guess, I was almost going to autopilot then and going, oh, maybe that's part of the appeal. But I don't think it is the appeal, really. Like, you know, I'm super indie, but I love it when the bands I like, you know, become big. Um, And lots of people know them. I'm not sort of elitist like that. But I don't know. It's just a bit of a, you know, I do this website and um, the occasional episode 
um, that sits within my other within my main music podcast, James McMahon Music Podcast, called Indie Heaven, where I and the sort of premise is like speaking to bands that don't exist anymore, but you know maybe so, I mean some of them you know have done um, Ned's Atomic Dustbin for there or um, Echo Belly or Carter USM, you know, which were all bands that achieved a fair bit, but the ones I really enjoy speaking to the most are the bands that sort of didn't, they were sort of there and then they weren't there. Mm. And, but at the same time, their legacy is sort of that weirdos like me ended up obsessing about one of the songs for 20 years or whatever. And in a weird way that the idea for that website stroke podcast was born out of this song because I don't know. It just seems weird to me that you can listen to a person's voice over and over and over and over again in your life and their song can matter so much to you but you just could pass them in the street and not know who they were and I guess that kind of as the world becomes so fast and you are assaulted with so much information there's there's sort of something quite I don't know there's a bit of sort of magic in that really I think magic and failure that's my spin the next choice is is a slightly more well-known Nirvana track. Uh, well, not necessarily as well-known, but radio-friendly unit shifter. Uh, this this is a probably one of the most influential bands ever. I would say. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, I, I I think so. I'm not. Yeah, kind of. Like Nirvana, are a weird band in that I think a lot of the music that they inspired is awful. Um, and I would maybe argue that, like, I don't know, you know, Nirvana, I think, were they around today, would talk about their big influences being the Pixies or uh, Black Sabbath or the Beatles. And, you know, all those bands, I think, are a lot more influential. But I think with Nirvana, they... It still sort of blows my mind to this day that I lived at a time when Nirvana existed. Like... And they unquestionably completely changed my mindset about music from the very off because they turned me in onto they turned me onto underground music. Um, yeah, and I just don't think that would have happened if I'd got into Guns N' Roses first. No, I mean not that I particularly have a problem with Guns N' Roses. You know, like put appetite for destruction on at a certain time of the day, and I'll lose my mind. But like Nirvana were, they were sort of taught me a different. I don't know, sort of set of rules. That doesn't sound very sexy, but like they, yeah. they, they, they taught me that you could do it in a, a different way, and it kind of blows my mind that that happened, and also that happened at such a sort of early point in my life. But you know, like when I hear Radio Friendly Unit Shifter, which is my favourite Nirvana song on my favourite Nirvana record, which is in utro, like I'm 13, you know, I'm down the youth club, yeah, um, you know, it's magic, and I, I just think the thing with Radio Friendly Unit Shifter is that for me, it just embodies everything I love about Nirvana. You know, it's super, it's super tuneful, you know, like the, the chorus is an amazing hook, um, but it's just, just nasty as well. You know, like it's filthy, the guitars sound filthy. Yeah. It's an amazing, I mean, probably even better than the, the tune itself. There's an amazing, there's an amazing live performance. I think it's for some MTV show, which is on YouTube. And there were four pieces at that point. Cause Pat Smears playing guitar, and I, do, I, I remember, I remember watching it for the first time and just being like, "They should play this in schools." 
They should just play this <laughs> for kids. You know, it would just, it would just be, it's just like a, as a cultural document. It's just, uh, it's amazing. I think it's exactly the same thing happened to me. I think in, I was listening to a lot of thrash metal and, and uh, just tr- very traditional heavy metal. And then I think I, with, with Nirvana, just listening to an older brother's, not my older brother, but around a friend's house doing, you know, power, power chords and stuff or practicing for a band I used to play in called Bad Obsession in a church. And around his other oh yeah, older brother playing Nirvana from his bedroom. I'm thinking, what the hell is that? It just sounded so alien. But then, yeah, opened up everything, you know, then it was Alice in Chains and everything else for me after that. And uh, yeah, such a, 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 t- a turning point in terms of just being able to progress or, or think, like you say, just the guitars not being perfect. And, you know, back when I was listening to guitar music or the very early days, like Slayer and Megadeth, Metallica, it was so much precision in that music and um, finesse, you know, and speed. And here was something that was just completely ramshackled and raw. It was amazing. Well, I mean, not that I want to skip past the revelation that, you're in a band called Bad Obsession, <laughs> um, which is um, which is quite the name. I, yeah. Part of me, part of me wants to say, part of me wants to say, I really want to hear you, but I think more than anything, I really want to design a logo for you on uh, the front of my Jota. You know, I feel like it would be yeah. like clashing swords and yeah. We um, we had a song called Night Stalker. Oh, um, of course, you did. Yeah, I mean, it just it, you're. Everything kind of it kind of speaks for itself, doesn't it? Playing in the church it. as well. That's the, that's the best bit of the story, <laughs> I see. No, I think with um, I don't know. I, I'm a bit loath to sort of describe to describe Nirvana as like ramshackle, so to speak, because I do think that just the way, especially when Grohl gets involved, I think the yeah. way that they, I think the way they lock in is 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 amazing. But I guess it is that thing of like, you know, I remember, you know, idiots at school being. You know, when we were, when everyone was into music, I remember idiots at school being like, "Oh, you can't even play the guitar," you know, and you'd be like, "Well, well, you blatantly can," but you know, it's just that, you know, them being kind of schooled on, I don't know, not to pick on Slash or anything, you know, but like he played guitar in a very different way, you know, mm. like, and but I think that was a bit of the appeal for me as well. Like, you know, I heard Nirvana and I formed a band, you know, within, mm. you know, I mean, we weren't very good. We were called the Hairdos at that point. <laughs> But I formed a band within, you know, kind of six months, you know, mucking about in my mate's garage. And I don't think I would have if if I'd heard, I don't know, Dream Theater or something, you know, because I just would have been like, That's, that looks really hard, you know. Whereas with Nirvana, I was like, I can probably do that. But I think the other thing that's genius with Nirvana is that, like, nobody, nobody like, even though what they do isn't, particularly difficult to do nobody sounds like them you know it's so i don't think i've ever i don't think i've ever you know i've been in so many like rehearsal rooms over the years with bands and you kind of hear someone in, a, in another room doing i don't know territorial pissings or something like that and like it doesn't sound like nirvana it just sounds like a bunch of idiots but like because it's almost just something that's alchemy between the people that are in the band and the yeah. way it all sort of clicks together and stuff. I lo- I love Nirvana. I I, I, re- I love Nirvana in such a way that I can still get excited about them now after all these years. Like if I see a photo of Nirvana, I'm like, the God, they look brilliant. Then we go to uh, choice number four, 
Pulp and um, Pink Glove from his and hers, 94, I think. It's a bit of a yeah. contrast this to, to what we've been talking about and, and really in terms of like just where we are in the decade and just, uh, I don't know, everything from the pack, the whole package, the whole Pulp package. Um, well, I mean, what a time as well. I mean, it just seems so yeah, uh, different. There you go. Yeah, no, I, I, I think Pulp are like... They're a weird band in the sense that they they feel quite at odds with like the modern age, which I guess that isn't that weird, really, because, you know, the whole thing with Paul Bizzard existed for such a long time before, you know, before that point, you know, before mm. his and hers, and almost like, you know, they sort of changed a little bit, but really the world sort of synced up with them. You know, I think there's a lot of, you know, Britpock... I'm a real like Britpop apologist, you know. Like I can, a lot of other music journalists can, can. I mean, I've read some truly appalling takes over the years about how Brexit was born from Britpop and all this sort of bollocks. But for me, like being fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, it, it was just amazing to me. And I think that Britpop produced some really weird music because some really great weird music because it was like it was almost like a place for weirdos and then eccentrics and you know I remember going to see pulp and like tiger supporting or like denim supporting and and they're, and they're like you I mean you know denim you know lawrence you know being in felt like these people were unique and mm. so yeah anyway i'm sort of going off on a bit of a tangent there but i think the thing with pink glove is that I look. I mean, I've heard them criticise. I've heard Bernard. I think, I think one of the reasons why Bernard Butler left Suede was because uh, allegedly he didn't like Ed Buller's produ- production on Dogman Star. But I'm sure I've heard Pulp moan about the production of his and hers as well. And that's Ed Buller. And but I, I love it. Like mm. I, I love that era of Pulp where Russell Senior is like. Just who, who I think is almost like the sort of the, the secret source when it comes to pulp, if I'm being honest. Yeah, and he's sort of conjuring that, like almost sort of ethereal noise, and then I, th- I just love the way Jarvis sings at that point, and I, I just, that song was like, you know, when I was listening to that song, I didn't know what it was about. You know, I didn't know it was like mucky. Um, <laughs> But uh, that sort of almost <laughs> that sort of almost added to the sort of the illicit nature of it as well, you know. Like, oh, what's all this about? Oh, I feel quite grown up listening to this, you know. But um, I could have picked a bunch of songs of his and hers, and well, you know, maybe even, well, you know, certainly, uh, certainly different class. And you know, I love a load of songs on this is hardcore, and yeah, you know, even beyond, you know, like Pulp are really kind of. A band that I, I just love, but uh, yeah, it's, Pink, Pink Glove's always the one that if I'm sort of making a playlist or something like that, it's always the one I come back to. Uh, I grew up in Doncaster, you know, it's my hometown, and uh, you know, that's like 30 minutes, 20 minutes from Sheffield, and you know, that's where we would go, you know, that's where we would go to gigs when we were old enough to go there, or it was just kind of where we'd go and hang around Sheffield, and it was. I don't know, like almost, I, I I was at quite a young age, like 
at quite a young age, like mucking around going to charity shops and, you know, wearing clothes that, you know, old men would wear and like sort of leaning into kitschness and, um, you know, almost like sort of trying to live your life like you were in his and hers, you know, mm. like it was like, it was weird going to Sheffield at that point and the places we would hang around like Tin Pan Alley and it was, I mean, it was just nothing like I knew in Doncaster, you know, it was just going into kind of retro clothes shops and it just, that wasn't anywhere. That was nothing like what was in Doncaster at that point. And like, I don't know, it, that, that record makes a lot more sense. Mm. Or it made a, or it made a lot of sense to me, sort of almost seeing where they'd come from. I feel like quite lucky in that way, really. Do you think they'd ever reform? Well, I always hear, I always hear that they don't really get on. Ah, um, that's. I mean, not that that's ever been reported, but that's kind of just what I've always kind of always been the scuttlebutt, um, which is a shame. If you know, if that's the case, but also I can understand. Maybe, maybe I can understand why that you know why that would happen, but yeah, I don't know. It's, it's weird, really. Like they did, they they got back together, didn't they, about ten years ago, and did. I think it was Reading Festival, and mm. I missed them, unfortunately, which is a long and far too convoluted story for <laughs> the here and now. But I don't know, really. I suppose it. I suppose it depends on cash, doesn't it? I suppose it depends if you know they'd, they'd get a good wad of cash. But I think Jarvis is managed to be consistently interesting for yeah. you know for all of the all of that time and he's he's sort of like i mean that guy literally i've never interviewed him but i've crossed paths with him a few times and i think he would go i think he would be like oh all he ever wanted to be was famous and known and then he got about as famous and known as you could be and then he hated it yeah and you know, I think now he, he's probably where he would like to be, which is, you know, just being known and known for, known for being good at what you do and being respected and stuff. So, I don't know. I, I mean, I would love to see Pulp again, but um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm 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 pleased. I'm pleased to have been a teenager at the moment when it all blew up. Final choice, then, uh, James. We're going to go with uh, Blur. This is a low, probably one of my favourite all-time tracks, to be fair, and one on the list that I think resonates with me the most, Park Life uh, from 95. And this is probably one of the better tracks on that album, I think. Um, you're implying that they're not all brilliant on that album. <laughs> there's a couple of, there's a couple of difficult oh, ones. Oh, what are you not, what are you not into? <laughs> um, not the one that comes after Tracy Jacks, isn't it? Um, uh, London Loves. Oh, I love London loves. <laughs> oh no, I, no, I really do. No, I really do. Uh, I actually was putting that on a. I put that on a playlist recently. Um, do apologise. I should never insult the guests. No, no, it's fine. It's, <laughs> no, it's, it's fine. I love that song though. I should have picked that. I, 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 yeah, I'm going to talk about London loves. The thing I love about London loves is that it. Uh, I love the bit where. I don't know. I just that there's a lot on that record where they're almost fetishizing a version of Britain that doesn't really exist anymore. Mm. But actually, I think London Loves is quite a good snapshot of what I know and love and hate about London. Like I love that bit where it almost sort of sounds like they're trying to tune the radio in, and 
it's just very evocative and i can see the I can see the bright lights and I can see the I can see the 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 puddles you know the bright lights refracting off the puddles yeah um yeah no I I just no I love that song that's that, that's surprising but anyway <laughs> now the, the uh I think the thing with this is low is it was I could, I mean I just could have picked one of many blur songs they they were just like you know, there's that sort of cliche. There was a lot. Well, there was a lot. Of, there was a lot of girls at my school who like love like take that or Boyzone or not so much Boyzone. E seventeen. That's more sort of the era, and um, and I was like that about Blur. You know, like I was just nuts. Um, posters on my wall. You know, I remember going to see them at Sheffield Arena and like counting down the days for. You know, like like almost a year beforehand. You know, it was just proper proper fandom you know and yeah and i think they were just such a good band for that you know they were an indie band but they were almost kind of a pop band as well like they looked great they said really funny things they said a lot of stupid things which we said didn't think was stupid at the time i thought they were funny like uh I, but i was i was just obsessed with coxon you know my mum always tells me a story about when she was at school when she was a little girl and she was obsessed with the monkeys and um how Peter Talk was her favourite and she would be like, you know, uh, saving up money to get the, like a Peter, a Peter Talk poster or whatever. And I was just like that, a bit like that with Blur, you know, it was like I, I had my favourite, you know, Coxon was just, was just my hero, you know. So, um, and the song itself, you know, I, you know, there's all those stories about how, um, Damon is, I think he's staying at his dad's house and he's like, like listening to shipping forecast and trying to work that into a song and yeah, you know, all that stuff. I, but again, it's, 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 it's Graham really. It's just the way he plays guitar in that song, like the tone. I love the tone of his guitar and the way that he eeks that solo out of it. And, um, and I think also just, I think, a lot of blur obsessives would say that, and actually just people who'd followed Damon Albarn's music beyond that, even that he's just so brilliant at like melancholy. Yeah. Like he, yeah. he's just so brilliant at just articulating a certain kind of sadness. I've never interviewed him. And I was thinking the other day, how much I would love to interview him because, you know, I'm someone who, uh, is definitely kind of plugged into, you know, being, being sad you know like that's definitely something i have a lot of experience of in my life and yeah uh, and i'm very interested in sort of psychology and things like that and i would love to try to understand where that melancholy comes from because it's not you know i mean it's just it's not that common um and i just think that's the thing with this is low is i just think it does that it, it you can maybe argue that he, he does that better later on. You know, you can, you know, uh, he thought of Cars or Yuko and Hero or, you know, it's it's all over, like the self-titled record. This uh, um, One of the, the track this reminds me of, or, or maybe just follows suit, is um, No Distance Left to Run, which I think is an absolute heartbreaker. And... Uh, uh, some, one of the other ones off this. The, the, well, the Universal has got a similar kind of swellingness to it. It just sort of just evokes kind of sadness. 
Yeah, I can't. I mean, unfortunately, the Universal's been ruined by British gas for me. I can't. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can't quite hear like maybe what was intended to be heard at the time. <laughs> you know, uh, but no, he's, he's just he's just brilliant. Here. There was a song I was listening the other day to that solo record he put out, and I'll be honest, I haven't spent a load of time with it, but I was listening to it quite early in the morning the other week when I was trying to do some work, and I had to turn it off about halfway through because I just was finding it just so. You know, it was like, um, I don't know, like my mum. <laughs> my mum's always, I'm giving my mum quite a lot of props here, aren't I? My mum <laughs> always says to me, like, my mum's my watching The Handmaid's Tale at the moment. She's always like, oh, you should, and, I, and I've, I've watched quite a bit of it. And she's like, you should catch up. I'm like, I can't listen to The Handmaid's Tale in 2021 because it's like watching a documentary. Yeah. Like, it's just too sad for, like, the state of the world. And um, I felt a little bit like that with David the other day. I was just like, nope, this is too much for me right now. Um, but no, nah, I mean, the guy's just a genius, you know, I, I, I don't really like throwing the word genius around when it comes to music because I, I almost feel like it should be safe for scientists and what's not. But yeah. the guy, the guy's just amazing with, with melody, you know, he's a, you know, almost like McCartney level, you know? Yeah. Amazing. And, and he's rocking a mullet at the moment, which I think is awesome. I, I mean, he is literally living his best life. <laughs> he can do what he wants. Hairstyle was. I mean, that's... I think, so. I think so. And also, like he was the he was the most he was like the most handsome man in the most handsome man in the country for about ten years as well. Like, yeah, just, just let it all hang out now. <laughs> Although I, I, I was the other day, I was looking at a, a, I saw a, a recent picture of Graham Coxon, and I was like, yeah, you are you are aging like a fine wine. Yeah, yeah. I don't. It, it's kind of weird with that band mm. how. You've got the guy in the band that like bloody loves cheese, and like likes you know faffing around on farms and stuff, and then you, I don't know, I I, I know people who know Dave Roundtree a little bit. I'm hoping I can interview him at some point. But and then you've got these two people who just went, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not really into fame. It's kind of weird, you know, this sort of juxtaposition between them all as personalities. Yeah, and no, I love that band. Well. I'm going to let you go into the night, James. Get yourself into bed with a hot toddy or whatever they, whatever you do. Absolutely. No, I noticed, I, I felt like, much as is, is the case of COVID, like, uh, I felt I, I felt like, all right, actually, having that conversation. And then probably when we got to Blur, <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was like, I think you can hear that splutter, you know. So, Ugh. yes, def, definitely time to wrap things up. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for picking the songs and talking to me on the podcast. It's been brilliant. Oh, no, it's been, uh, it's been a pleasure, mate. <laughs>